0: If you got a Bible with you, let me invite you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter five, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 17 through 32. So Acts chapter five, we're having a great time working through this book, and the title of the sermon this morning is Satan's plans always backfire. Satan's plans always backfire. Acts chapter five, verses 17 through 32. You know Satan's a loser, right? So throughout the sermon, we'll be pointing it out several times, all right? So here we go. Acts chapter 5, 17 and following. Luke writes this, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night... An angel of the Lord appeared, or excuse me, opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, They did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, the guard standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to, and someone came and told them, look, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you have intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men, Well, Father, we bow our heads before you this morning, thankful to read this book of Acts, this glorious historical perspective of the true events that occurred in the first century church. And we're thanking you, God, for just reminding us that you're in charge, you're in control, you will have your way no matter what. Thank you for the boldness that we see in the passage here of these apostles who continued to preach the gospel. May we learn from them and their example how we can be faithful in our witness for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Satan's plans always backfire. Satan thinks that he can outsmart God. Satan thinks that he can outmaneuver God. Satan thinks that he can outthink, outwit, and outplay God. But the truth is, Satan loses every single time. Satan tried to outpower God after creation, but Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15 tells us, this is about how Satan fell, he says, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the the nations low. Apparently, Satan thought that he could organize a coup against God, and then that passage goes on in Isaiah fourteen thirteen and following, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. This is what Satan says. He says, I will make myself like the most high, but you were brought down to Sheol To the far reaches of the pit, Satan always loses. His plans always backfire. When he tries to one-up God, God takes care of the business that God wants to take care of. And Satan was not alone in this attempt to take over the throne room of heaven. For Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 tells us that a third of the angels fell with him. Satan's plan backfired. In Genesis 6, Satan then tried to use the Nephilim to go into the daughters of men and to bear children with them. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and he sent a worldwide flood to wipe out Satan's plan to bifurcate the human race. Satan's plan backfired. In Genesis 11, Satan tried to motivate the people to build a tower which could reach up into the heavens and to make a name for themselves. But God confused their language and dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Satan's plans had once again failed. In Exodus, Satan worked through Pharaoh to enslave God's people, but God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. When Pharaoh and his army pursued the Hebrew people, God gave the Hebrews a great victory. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Both horse and rider has thrown into the sea. Exodus 15, 1. Satan's plan failed. The biggest attempt of all was for Satan to thwart God's plan of the incarnation. Do you remember Revelation chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 that says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child that he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and to his throne. Satan attempted to devour the Lord Jesus Christ when he came to earth through Herod and the killing of the babies, as you know, in Bethlehem. But you know what? Satan's plan backfired. Of course, Satan tried to tempt Christ in the wilderness, and Christ defeated the devil yet again. Even on the cross, there is the fulfillment of Satan bruising Christ's hill, but Christ crushed Satan's head. First Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Satan's attempt to destroy Jesus backfired again. And we also read about Satan's future in Revelation chapter 20. If you think he's learned his lesson, he hasn't. Because he will continue to attack like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet we know in the future, Revelation 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And if that's not enough, verse 10 of Revelation 20 then says, After those thousand years, the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's ultimate plans always backfire. It may appear that he is winning a few battles here and there, but Satan is definitely losing the war. Dear child of God, If you are in Christ this morning, then Satan's plans are backfiring in your life. He has no control over you. He can't make you do a single thing. You have freedom over the devil in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are already a child of God. You are not a child of the devil if you're in Christ this morning. And and what man and what the devil meant for evil, God means for good. And your eternity is secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is to be your strength. And in Christ, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In Christ, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And no matter What is going on in your life today? Through Jesus, you are an overcomer. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. In Christ, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Because of Jesus, you have been regenerated, reborn, and renewed. There is nothing that Satan has done or will ever do that can change who you really are in Christ. And I just wanted to remind you of that this morning, dear Christian, I wanted to remind you that you are God's precious son, his precious daughter, and you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be afraid of on this day. Satan has no sustaining power over you, and we see that in this passage today, this morning, that Satan has no sustaining power over the church in Acts. This church in Acts was a powerful church This church in Acts was a respected church. This church in Acts was a growing church. This church in Acts was a healing church. We looked at those four points in our time together last week. And now this morning, in verses 17 through 32, I want us to see three unique ways which we see how Satan's plan backfires. Three unique ways which we see how Satan's plan backfires. If you're taking notes on the PowerPoint, you should read that first one. Number one is this, the arrest and the release of the apostles, your first blank. If you are taking notes, says that the Sadducees were extremely jealous. They were extremely jealous. Verses 17 and 18, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. As many signs and wonders were being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, the Jewish authorities took notice. In fact, if you'll go back up and look at verses 15 and 16, it says, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so you might think that after witnessing this, verses 15 and 16, that the Jewish authorities would have been so thankful that people who were struck with illness are now completely healed. You might think that the Jewish authorities would be overjoyed that some of their own people who had been demon-possessed were now actually set free. You might think that the Jewish authorities were somewhat obligated and obliged to the apostles for their acts of kindness and human charity. But no, that's not what this text is about. It says, the high priest rose up, verse 17. This high priest would have either been Caiaphas, the reigning high priest, could also be a reference to Annas, who was the high priest emeritus. The high priest rose up, and he, he rose up not to, to give thanks or to give praise, but rather to give orders to arrest the apostles. Those who were with the high priest would have been that governing body which controlled the political party at the time, 70 Sadducees, the council, those who had gathered to gather. The Sadducees made up all the 70 seats on the, of the Sanhedrin, and they pretty much dominated the political landscape. The Pharisees were more popular with the people and we read a lot about them, but it was the Sadducees that held the power Now, there's a lot of irony going on here about how the Sadducees are in power and they're trying to keep the apostles in jail. And the irony that is in the passage, as we've already read through the text for this morning, is this. The Sadducees actually didn't believe in any of the Old Testament except the first five books, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch of the Bible. They only believed in that much of the Bible. They didn't believe in any other parts of the Old Testament. The Sadducees didn't even believe in angels. And yet we have an angel of the Lord who shows up to free these uh, disciples, these apostles from prison. The Sadducees didn't even believe in a resurrection, and yet we know that Christ has been raised from the dead. Get this, the Sadducees didn't even believe in any miracles of any kind, even though we've already seen multiple miracles happening right in front of their faces and in this particular text, the the irony is that it is in, an incredible miracle that's taking place as an angel frees the apostles out of the prison to go preach about the resurrection of Jesus. There's great irony here in this passage that the very things that they claim to, they're being confronted with in real life. Not only that, but the apostles were performing miracles all over the place so that this would definitely be contradicting the core of the Sadducees' beliefs. This, this made the Sadducees upset. They were angry. They were jealous. That's what the word is that's used here. They were filled with jealousy. The word jealous here means intense, negative feelings over another's achievement or success. The apostles were achieving a certain amount of popularity, a certain amount of interest, a certain success to their ministries. And they were garnering attention and the praise of the people to some degree. And the Sadducees hated this. They hated the fact that somehow that these men were making progress in the ways of Christ. And so the Sadducees, while they should have been rejoicing with those who rejoice, instead they were envious. They wanted the attention that the apostles were getting. They didn't want the people of Israel to change their allegiances. The Sadducees didn't want their power to be threatened. And the Bible says that they're filled with this jealousy. That that means that they're completely full. They they didn't have any room in their hearts for anything else except their own glory. Though they said they worshiped God, they neither knew God nor rejoiced at the works of God. And we see that the Jews here are getting jealous, and they got jealous of the apostles regularly throughout the book of Acts. In fact, if you'll look over at chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, verse 45, it says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. So as the apostle Paul came on the scene, he's preaching the word. The Jews, again, they're filled with jealousy. Look over at Acts 17. Acts 17, this is Paul, uh, as uh, as they've been over in Thessalonica. Uh, It says in verse five, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. they're jealous. They're upset. They're, They're confronting the apostles regularly throughout the book of Acts. And so these Sadducees here in Acts 5, they arrested the apostles and they put them in a public prison. That's all they knew to do with them. They had already arrested Peter and John once in Acts chapter 3 when they healed the man there at the, the, the gate of Bethesda, uh, So now they, uh, they, at the beautiful gate, rather. And so now they're here and they are arresting now the entire clan. All the apostles are being arrested and put into a public prison. The, the Romans would give some jurisdiction to the Sanhedrin to make arrests that were related to their cultural and religious laws. Now, now, keep in mind that there are no religious laws cited here as the reason for the arrest, but we know that the motive was that of jealousy. The Sadducees wanted to maintain the status quo. They didn't want to change, and they didn't want anything about them to be changed, and they didn't want anything in their agenda to be, to be diverted. They, they had an agenda to keep control of the people and to teach them as they saw fit. And the apostles were now put in jail. And, and it's really hard to understand how they thought that the prison bars could restrain the power of God. But when you are operating out of jealousy, you're acting, not rationally, but you're acting out of emotion. They're overcome with emotion, whether are not thinking clearly, acting clearly, seeing clearly. They just want to stick to what they want to stick to. So the Sadducees were extremely jealous, and your next blank says, the angel of the Lord was remarkably strategic. Verses 19 through the first part of verse 21. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now you gotta like that, right? You gotta appreciate that it was during the night that an angel of the Lord open prison doors this isn't the apostles coming up with a prison escape plant and somehow digging with a spoon under their cell until they get the tunnel long enough to all run out run out you know and get away no this is them they're sitting there they're being faithful serving their sentence they most likely were in prayer maybe even in song we read about that in Acts 16. and so they're sitting there but all of a sudden this angel shows up delivers them out of the prison and tells them to go back into the temple area and to preach This happens, uh, this angelic involvement of rescuing from prison happens also in Acts 12. Look over at Acts 12. We see another occasion where an angel rescued godly man from prison, Acts 12, verses 5 through 10. Verse 5 says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So we see a second occurrence of an angel. In the book of Acts, freeing the apostles, Peter, and others from prison. And we know from the Bible that angels are created beings that worship and serve God. Angels often play an important role in the world that God created. The Bible shows us how angels get involved in the lives of humans at God's prodding. Many scriptures indicate how angels observe Christians and their lives. While angels cannot experience salvation, they are interested in the conversion experience of individuals and in the application of grace. Salvation through Jesus' resurrection is such an amazing event that angels desire to investigate, and it propels them to, to want to help with the preaching of the gospel. Peter said of angels in 1 Peter one twelve, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that "...have now been announced to you that through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look." Angels love to wonder about salvation. They love to meditate about how a soul could be converted. They, they are enjoying so much the gospel ministry and they are designed, created by God to help fulfill his purposes." And you may think that, that here with the angels, that they are, you know, involved uh, with them throughout the New Testament. There's other places where angels, uh, Hebrews 1.14 uh, says they're ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Uh, there's times when angels interfere with the events of human history to assure God's plan is fulfilled. And so it is here in Acts chapter 5. The angels are sent by God. This angel sent by God, an angel of the Lord, very much involved in the deliverance of the apostle's from prison, and in directing them of where they should go next. You may think that when something miraculous happens, when God's people are set free from jail, that they would just run. That's what I would do. I was set free from jail. I would just run. But that's not the case. They are directed to go back to the temple and to preach. In fact, maybe the other most famous jailbreak In the Bible would be Acts 16. We haven't looked at it yet. Yeah, why don't you turn there with me. Acts 16. This is Paul and Silas who were in the Philippian jail. And I've mentioned already that sometimes they're praying, singing hymns. That's what's happening here. Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of their incarceration, they're involved in worship. And it got the attention of the other prisoners who couldn't help but to listen, how could these men be praying to God? And suddenly, verse 26, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Maybe you know that the the rule was if your prisoner escaped You're supposed to die as the guard because you didn't do your job. So this guard's about to kill himself, supposing, the end of verse 27, that the prisoners had escaped. Remember, I told you if I saw an earthquake and things had been set free, I'm just going to take a run for it. I'm, I'm just assuming that God loves me so much that he wanted to set me free so I could be in a safe place. But here we see Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So both of these examples, Acts 16, we could say Acts 12, and then back to Acts 5, these prison breaks, all of these are perfect examples of how Satan's plan totally backfired. Satan's plans would have been for the apostles to be locked up and silenced. But in each instance, the apostles were delivered from jail to continue to serve their deliverer. They were delivered not to just find a safe place they were delivered to serve the one who delivered them. And the one who delivered them here in Acts five had a place for them to go. He says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The angels didn't tell here in Acts five, they didn't tell the apostles to go to a secluded area, He doesn't tell them, this angel doesn't tell them to go to a safe area. He doesn't tell them to go somewhere else. He says, go to this strategic area. Get right back into the preaching of the gospel in the public square. They were freed not to hide, but to boldly return to the temple and continue the ministry of the gospel. And that's exactly what the apostles did in the beginning of verse 21. They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. You think our service is a little early at 9.30. All right, they're, they get, they're there at daybreak, and they're ready to teach. Satan was trying to stop the preaching of the gospel, but Satan's plan backfired again. Well, now that we've seen the arrest and the release of the apostles, let's look at our second heading this morning, number two, The Power and the Perplexity of the Authorities. Your next blank says, Physical power does not always secure the upper hand. Physical power does not always secure the upper hand. There in the middle of verse 21, it says, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all of the senate of the people of Israel, and sent... To the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guard standing at the door, but we have opened uh, but when we opened them, we found no one in sight. So the Sanhedrin, the high priest, They all had the physical, the political power, if you will, but they did not actually have the upper hand in this situation. That the angel of the Lord had delivered the apostles, and they were now in the temple preaching. So when the officers showed up, they would have found the guards standing in place, and they would have looked like the jail was secure. But when they actually went inside, there were no prisoners. Right? Certainly some irony in that. They're all standing there. They think the guys are still behind them in prison, but when they go in, they're not there. There is no person, there is no earthly power, there is no physical force that can contain the power of God. Romans 8:31, "If God is for us, who can be against us? We know that Romans 8:37 through39 says, "No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor nor depth, nor anything else at all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Romans 8 is talking about salvation, that God grants salvation by His sovereign grace to those who repent and believe. And that's exactly what we should be meditating on when we face persecution of any kind. I still belong to God. I'm in his hands. I'm, I'm in his control. I'm under, living my life under his providence. And when we face physical persecution at times, we know that that doesn't change our standing before Christ. Not one thing will happen to us outside of God's ordained plan. Even though it may feel at times like you're going down, if you're in Christ, you're always going up. You're always doing exactly what he's calling you to do when you're walking in obedience to God's word. And so we see here that physical power doesn't always secure the upper hand. We also see, your next blank, that spiritual power confounds the natural world. Spiritual power confounds the natural world. Verses 24 through 26. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, "'Look, the men whom you put in prison "'are standing in the temple and teaching the people.' "'Then the captain with the officers went "'and brought them, but not by force, "'for they were afraid of being stoned by the people.'" Here we see the powers that were already, uh, the, the powers that be were already at their wits trying to figure out what to do with the apostles, and now they can't even find them in prison, which was the same prison they had locked them up in. And as their efforts proved futile, there was no doubt some panic or maybe some fear, maybe certain consternation that was mounting up in their hearts. They were greatly, the text says, perplexed. This word perplexed means that they were completely at a loss. It means that they were utterly confused. They had no idea what was going on or what to do next. The world has no idea what to do with the power of God. And when they are not able to comprehend the wisdom of God, then they get confused they get perplexed. Only God can open and reveal his truth and himself to them. That's a spiritual principle that's taught throughout the Bible. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're talking about the world being perplexed as they try to understand and figure out the power of God. That could be physical power, like the removal of the um, apostles from jail Putting them into prison, it could be creation. They can't understand creation. You can never argue with an atheist to understand creation until first he comes to a point of salvation. So they're they're confused when they see earthly power. They're confused when they see spiritual truths. They they can't understand spiritual truths. 1 Corinthians 2.10, speaking of salvation through Christ, Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what is that passage saying? The unbelieving Jews don't understand what it is that God's doing, what it is that God's doing through the apostles, what he's doing through the story in Acts 5. They don't even understand salvation. They didn't understand. Why? Because this text says they're spiritually discerned, which means that they didn't understand. They had not experienced the illumination of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit, which gives saints the capacity to understand and to see spiritual truth. The spiritually blind are unable to see it. In fact, the world examines God's Word, and they find fault with it. They judge it as untrue, and in their dead spiritual state, they cannot understand the mind of God, or the holiness of God, or even understand the grace of God through Christ, And so back in Acts 5, look at verse 25 and 26 again, it says that someone came and told them, look, these men whom you put into prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So they're they're confused, they're perplexed, they don't know what's going on, and so finally they understand now, okay, these guys are now, uh, the authorities are informed, the apostles were in the temple, and this time the captain and the officers went and they brought them uh, not by force, it says in verse 26, then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned uh, by the people. I told you there's some irony in this text. Now it's like, well, who's afraid of who? Like the apostles, you might think, were afraid of the authorities because they got thrown in jail, but now the angel has put them out, and now the authorities are afraid to come get the apostles because they are afraid they may be stoned. Again, a little irony because the captain and the officers are afraid. They're afraid of being stoned by the people. The, the apostles' popularity and credibility with the people forced the authorities to proceed with an uneasy caution. And just like in the previous events, the apostles offered no resistance. I think that's what's so amazing to me as well throughout the New Testament. They never, they never fought their way out. They never even resisted their arrest. They were determined to submit to whatever God had in store for their future. They were not afraid. They were not complaining. They were not bickering. They were, as verse 41 says, look down at 541, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were they were pleased to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no whining about what was happening in their persecution. They were just pleased and rejoicing that they had a part to play in God's ultimate plan. And so we've seen the arrest and the release of the apostles. We've seen the power and the perplexity of the authorities. Let's now look at number three, the restriction and the freedom of serving the Almighty. They're restricted by the authorities, and yet we know in God's authority they have a freedom to serve the Almighty. Your next blank says, rebuked for teaching in the name of Jesus. You can kind of see this coming. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so they are brought again before the council, this time not by force because of the fear of the people, but they are brought nevertheless before the council for more questioning. The council reminds the apostles that they had strictly forbidden, back in Acts 3, they had strictly forbidden teaching in this name. Notice that the high priest was so jealous and he was so upset that he couldn't even bring himself to say the name Jesus. Jesus. He didn't want to say Christ, he didn't want to say the Messiah, he didn't want to say Jesus, he's just like, you, this, this man, we told you not to speak in this name. The high priest was so jealous and upset that he wasn't even willing to say the name, and yet here they are filling Jerusalem with their gospel preaching. That's what he's upset about. They weren't keeping their faith to themselves. Our society today wants you to experience freedom of religion in your own heart, right? They tell us like, hey, as long as you're in, maybe in your own church, which you know they're coming after it, and in your own heart, you can do whatever you want, but you can't step into the public square and profess faith in Christ. And faith in Christ includes all the words of life. That's what these guys are preaching. We're going to preach about Jesus. We're going to preach all of his words. We're not just preaching about faith in him. We're preaching that faith transforms and that faith leads to obedience, and faith leads to, to the joy of the Lord of walking in his path, and the culture is trying to cut us down at the knees. And I'm just telling you, we will not be silent. We will not be quiet. We will continue, as is it the tradition of our faith, to preach the full gospel. And my friends, we got to get ready for what's going to happen, because we will be brought before authorities sooner than later, about being reprimanded for doing what it is that we're doing here this morning. And yet we understand that we're willing to pay that price and we'd like to fill, just as they filled all of Jerusalem with the preaching of the gospel, let's fill all of Santa Clarita with the preaching of the gospel. Let's fill all of Saugus High School, Castaic High School, whatever high school you go to. Let's, let's fill it all with the preaching of the gospel. Let's go everywhere that we can and let's not be silent, and let's not back down, but let's fill this community with Christ. And how does that happen? It happens with us having a boldness and an energy and a, and a, and a conviction of there is an end that is coming, and, and this world is, is in a mess, and yet we have the answer. We have the words of life, and right now we are free to go anywhere that we want to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be encouraged this morning. Oh, how I would pray that our church would be so on fire with the gospel that we would fill this community with the teaching of the word of God. And the council said to them, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This is no doubt a reference to the fact that Peter had repeatedly preached that the Jews were indeed responsible for turning Jesus over to the authorities and having him crucified. I don't understand really what they're saying. They're like, you're going to blame us for his death? Well, yeah, we're blaming you for his death. Jesus, Acts 2.23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter, speaking at Pentecost, said, you, pointing to the Jews, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter had regularly been confronting them that Christ's blood died or Christ died and his blood is indeed upon your hands. That's Acts 2:23. Again in Acts 3:14 and 15, Peter and John state, "But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead." To this we are witnesses. Peter had already confronted these officials in Acts 4.10, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel, but that, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised up from the dead by him, this man is standing before you well. And so we see clearly that the apostles had been teaching that the Jews did indeed have Jesus crucified. But they were also preaching that this same Jesus that you had crucified has been raised from the dead. And that through the resurrection of Christ, you can have eternal life. By the way, every time in the book of Acts that the apostles confront the authorities and say, you crucified Christ, they never denied it. Not one time did the, uh, did the uh, religious leaders say, no, 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 we didn't do that. They, they owned it. Also... Every time Peter confronted them about, you crucified Christ, then he pivots and says, but God raised him from the dead, and he's now alive today. And the officials never denied the resurrection. At the end of the Gospels, they do. They say, oh, go tell them the disciples did it, and we're going to try to hide it and cover it up. But in the book of Acts, every time that that argument is given, they have nothing to say. You know why? Because it's true. They know they killed Jesus. They know Jesus was raised from the dead. They know they have a huge problem on their hands, and yet they still want to cover it up. And so they're upset just making these arguments about, look, we're just telling you you can't preach in His name. They really don't have anything to refute because they know that the apostles were right. and maybe the Jewish authorities even forgot what the Jewish people said at their prodding in Matthew 27:25, and the people answered, "His blood, "Be on us and on our children." So They owned it. These unbelieving Jews that were stirred up by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the council owned the fact that at the crucifixion that Christ's blood was indeed upon them and on their children. So I wonder what you would do today if you were rebuked in that same way to speak in the name of Jesus. If you were rebuked in this way where they were just clearly saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Again, what does that mean? I would say it includes all of the Bible, people. We can't just water that down and say, well, all we can do is just say, Jesus is the only way to heaven, but I'm not gonna get into morality or homosexuality or creation or CRT or mandated things or whatever. No, 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 we, we get into everything. <laughs> we, get, we just get involved in everything, don't we? Because we wanna live by wisdom, by truth, by conviction, and we cannot be muted. We cannot be muzzled. We cannot be forced to not open up our mouths to declare the clarity of the word of God. Now, the sharpest part of that clarity is Christ, because if you don't preach the gospel, no one's going to agree with you and all the other issues that we're working through today as a society, so we preach Christ first and foremost. But the way that we preach Christ also relates to the other issues that are going on. And then we see your next blank there says, faithful to obey God at all costs. That's what we're talking about. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. They were determined. Their mind was made up. The apostles had drawn a line in the sand. They were going with God over man. They were not going to flinch in the face of adversity, hide in the presence of hostility, or walk a path of mediocrity. No matter what it cost, they were convinced of doing the right thing. And the same thing had happened in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter four, 19 through 20, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. We're compelled to. We're compelled to preach God's word. We can't help but to speak of what, what we've seen and heard. So we must obey God rather than men. Now God has set up authorities And obeying those authorities is part of the Christian duty, part of our Christian responsibility. God's institutions include the family, the church, and the state. And in the case of government, Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter 2.17 that Christians were to honor the emperor by submitting to the government where we can. Ultimately, we are to submit to the governing authorities as long as they don't contradict God's word. And that includes obeying things like speed limits. <laughs> Just wanted to sit there for a minute. <laughs> we need to obey things like speed limits and stop signs, wearing seat belts, paying income taxes, adhering to building codes, renewing our driver's license, all out of our love for Christ. Christ. We love Christ. We want to be law-abiding citizens. But there are times when a Christian cannot and should not obey the state. And here in Acts 5, this is clearly one of those times. And I'm not suggesting that we should rebel when we simply dislike a law that makes us uncomfortable or because we don't like the leaders. I'm talking about acting wisely on occasions in which the state forbids what God requires or if the state sanctions what God forbids. Going against the state, of course, may lead to consequences which we must be willing to face, but many biblical examples of holy disobedience are evidenced in the scripture. You had the Hebrew midwives who would not commit infanticide during the times of Moses. You had Esther who lobbied for the preservation of the Jewish people. And you have Daniel who continued to pray to his God even though prayer had been outlawed. And here in Acts five, the apostles choose civil disobedience for an obvious reasons, uh, reason, they can't stop preaching the gospel. But notice how they didn't respond to the authorities with disrespectful speech or with violent riots, right? They, they simply kept declaring the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear brothers and sisters, we're living in difficult times, and I, I wanna encourage you to consider how God would want you to obey him In each and in every situation. And I can't tell you exactly what that looks like for you and your personal convictions and in your own life. But I'm just saying you need to be thinking about it. You need to be praying for wisdom. And you certainly want to say, Well, I'm going to go with Jesus no matter what. I'm going to preach the gospel. And then there's other things that the culture and the government has said that we've as a church stood up to and said, We're not going to do that. We're going to meet together. We're going to sing together. We're going to declare the glory of God together, and no matter what happens, we'll always continue to do that as a church, but now even in your own personal life and business, you have to make decisions, and we just wanted you to know as a church, we support you. We're behind you. We want to help you work through those conversations as elders. We've been having many conversations with various people, and rightly so, about how to think through it, how, how to take a stand, how to do what God would have them do, different people choose to take a different path, we support each path that's done in, uh, with a pure heart and a clear conscience and with biblical wisdom, and we're praying for you. We're praying for you. We know it's not easy, we're praying for wisdom, and we're praying that you would never go against your conscience, and we're praying that whatever you do, you would do it for the gospel's sake and for the sake of bringing glory to God with your actions and with your behavior. Our last blank here this morning says this, persistent in preaching a clear gospel message. Above all else, this is what the apostles wanted to continue to do is just be persistent in what it is that God had called them to do. In verses 30 through 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand and, has, uh, and as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And these verses, the apostles are are not so much trying to drive a wedge between them and the authorities, so much as they are trying to say that we're all from the same heritage. It was our fathers. It was Abraham, and it was, it was Isaac, and it was, it was Jacob, God of our fathers. He's appealing to them to say, guys, let's continue with God, but God is the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, I mean, he did the same thing in Acts three thirteen. the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, and he decided to release him. And so after making this connection with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the apostles make it clear that they, there, there still was a culpability in handing Jesus over to the Roman authorities. Again, they say, you killed him there in verse 30. Again, you killed him by hanging him on a tree. You did that. And this is a reference to the fact that Jesus was indeed crucified. Again, we looked at Acts 2.23 already. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 3.14 and 15 again, he, but you denied the Holy One and the Righteous One, and you killed the author of life. But we also see, as I've been saying, that there's also an emphasis on the resurrection. Every time they said, hey, you did this, you killed Jesus, they also say, but God raised him from the dead. And there's eternal life for all who repent and believe. And on this day, you could turn from your sin and acknowledge that what you did was wrong, that what you did was was hurtful to God, that you killed his son. And yet now in this moment, at this time, you have an opportunity to look at the glorious resurrection. And my friends, you could be here today and you need to know and I need to know that we're responsible for Christ's death. Our sin placed him on that cross. And we have an opportunity on this day to say, but... Jesus has been raised from the dead, and because he's been raised from the dead, I have an opportunity to have new life. I have an opportunity to walk in the power of the Spirit. I have an opportunity to walk in obedience. There is nothing that can keep me out of my internal inheritance in God. Through repentance and faith, which God grants, you have that opportunity here even this morning. We understand that God exalted him, verse 31, and he's at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. I love this word leader here. The word leader could also be translated as prince. It could be translated as ruler. It could be translated as originator or as founder. And they're saying, hey, this, we're talking about this eternal person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the prince of heaven. He's the ruler of the world. He's the originator of the earth. He's the founder of all things. And Philippians 2, 9 says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so we know that God raised Jesus from the dead, not just to show that he won and not just to to say that he could rub it in the devil's face. He raised Jesus from the dead to give, verse 31 says, to give repentance to Israel. God loves his people. He desires that his people would come to him. He sent his son to die for his people. And he, 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 he gives repentance. Repentance is not a work of the flesh. Repentance is not something you do with your own will. Repentance is faith. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is God's sovereign grace. Repentance is granted to those who would repent and believe. And it's offered to all of Israel. And then as we know, it's offered to the Gentiles as well. Acts eleven eighteen. 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. He's granted it to those who are chosen in the heritage of the Jewish uh, ethnicity and he's granted it to any Gentile who would repent and believe. He gives it. God gives us the opportunity to repent and to be forgiven throughout the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. The apostles are preaching the gospel, not some watered-down version. They're not preaching love wins. They're not preaching your best life now. They're not preaching easy believism. They're not preaching just try Jesus. They're preaching the gospel. They're saying God is holy and you and I are sinners. And Christ came and He died and He was raised from the dead. That if you repent and turn to Him and believe in Him, you can be saved. You can be born again. And oh, how that may be true of you even here this morning. That wherever you are in your life and in your walk and in your journey, you could be young and you could be old and you could have been here forever. This could be your first Sunday. And we're saying to you this morning, you can be born again. Your sins nailed Christ to the cross, but he's been raised from the dead. Won't you come to him this day? Won't you acknowledge your need for him this day? And if you're a Christian, won't you just rejoice in that on this day and say it's because of that I will defeat habitual sin in my life this week. It's because of the power of God that I don't have to keep arguing and keep complaining and keep fighting in ways that are sinful because I've been set free of that. I don't have to live that way anymore. In fact, I'm called, verse 32, to be a witness to these things. That's what the apostles are saying. Preaching the gospel, we're witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who showed up powerfully at Pentecost, who showed up and empowered the believers to understand and preach the word of God and perform these miracles, and God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So the apostles are witnesses. They are testifying to the fact The Holy Spirit is a witness, and the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all those who come to Christ. And it's understood here that when you come to Christ, you will obey Christ. You will walk in that obedience. The apostles are consumed with Jesus. They take every opportunity to make Christ known. So don't waste your Sanhedrin moment. When you have someone's ear, even in the face of persecution, give them the truth. That's all the apostles are doing. They they didn't set out to create conflict. They set out to do ministry. And when the Lord gives you opportunities to bear witness, take them. Remember that the Lord is with you and that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It was John Huss, a reformer from Bohemia who lived between the times of John Wycliffe and Martin Luther, who in the early 1400s, John Huss was arrested for preaching the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. He also preached against the sale of indulgences. He preached against the sacraments as being a means to salvation, and he preached against the Roman Catholic Pope as being the vicar of Christ. He also claimed that no pope or bishop could establish any doctrine contrary to the Bible, nor could a true Christian obey a clergyman's order if it contradicted the Scripture. The archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church had John Huss condemned as a heretic and excommunicated him from the church. But John continued to preach in various churches who wanted to hear his words of life, and he preached in the open air. And like Jesus, the common people heard him gladly. Formally condemned, he was handed over to the secular authorities to be burned at the stake on July the 6th, 1415. And on the way to the place of persecution, he passed by a churchyard and saw a bonfire of his books. He laughed and told the bystanders not to believe the lies circulating about him. Arriving at the place of execution, he was asked by the Emperor's marshal if he would finally retract his views. Huss replied, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought or preached except with one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. Today I will gladly die. Close quote. The fire was lit. And as the flames engulfed him, Hus began to sing in Latin a Christian chant Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy on me. Beautiful story from church history. Will cook his goose is a phrase that refers to this incident because in his native language, Hus means goose. He was literally cooked, burned at the stake. But in being cooked, he lit a fire of Christian-centered theology and church reform that would continue to point to the official reformation that began with Martin Luther 100 years later. Satan's plan had backfired again. And this morning, we want you to know that Satan's plan is backfiring in your life and in this world. And that no matter what you see, as you walk in obedience and as you walk in courage, Christ will be exalted. And if you're here this morning and you would like to turn from your sin and put your faith in the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll have a few people right here at this back door as we sing our final song that would love to pray with you, encourage you. If you have a concern of any kind, please allow us to come alongside you and minister to you as we would like to this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just look at a passage out of Acts 5, to be encouraged with so many truths, so many encouraging reminders that Satan's plan really does fail. Even when it seems like he's got the upper hand, we know he doesn't. Because we know that God wins and that God is the ultimate ordainer of all things that happen in life. And so even when things don't go according to our plan, we thank you that your plan will never be thwarted. Your plan will never be diverted. Your plan will never be canceled. And you have a plan to work providentially through the acts of men in a way that while we don't fully understand, bring you glory and honor as we, as your children, as those who've been adopted into your family, live a life full of faith, a life full of wonder, a life full of worship, a life full of joy, a life full of change and transformation that we would just look to you and love you and sing out this final song to you and live this day for you and this week for you in a way that we would see Christ exalted. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.